This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Military top brass say it's too early to judge whether the war in Afghanistan has been successful. We will not see success until five to ten years after the potential for us all to be out of uh, in a campaign fighting regime in 2015. The Turkish president visits Britain in pursuit of EU membership and Americans celebrate Thanksgiving. But what have they got to be thankful for? The head of the armed forces has warned that it may be another 10 years before he can say whether the war in Afghanistan has been a success. The chief of the defence staff, General Sir David Richards, has given an interview to the Times newspaper. The piece has been published less than 24 hours after the head of the RAF spoke to the BBC's World at One. Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton talked about how and when they could measure success. From an from a, yeah, overall campaign point of view, success has got to look like the Afghan people having a governance system system in place that allows them to determine their future and the way they want to go. From a military point of view, the success of that campaign is about allowing them space to develop and to mature that governance regime in a way that they then can take on all the responsibilities of government from security, economics, trade and all that, to be able to take forward their own future and the way they go forward. To me, success will be we will not see success until five to ten years after the potential for us all to be out of uh, in a campaign fighting regime in 2015. That will be the timescale of which we'll be able to look back and say, did we do enough to provide them the space and the opportunity to take on that governance and fulfil those roles? But you could be looking back and saying there's a civil war going on. We could, uh, and, and of course that is always a possibility. I think what's being demonstrated day by day, though, in everywhere from Lashkar to Kabul, is that apart from the odd spectacular, which will happen as we develop the, uh, the full capability within the Afghan uh, National Security Forces, that we can see more and more examples of where there is greater capability to defend and to safeguard their own future. The, law, the reason the lawyer Jervis just happened uh, in, in the last week, that was done entirely with security from the Afghan National Security Forces themselves. That went off very well. There was a good level of discussion, I understand, and that demonstrates perhaps that there is a real possibility for governance to come forward and for the people to be able to decide that they are being successful themselves. Well, BFBS reporter Jeff Mead joins us from our studio in Camp Bastion and our defence analyst Christopher Lee is also with us. Hello to both of you. Uh, Jeff, looking at both these interviews, they're both saying the same thing, aren't they? Yes, and I think some degree of coordination. Uh, I mean, chiefs of staff don't happen to give interviews to the media in such a close time frame uh, without there being a, a, a degree of cooperation and planning in, in the uh, whole operation. I think what we're witnessing here is very much expectation management. Uh, the worry, I think, that the service chiefs have is that we're all getting too focused on 2014, uh, a little more than three years away, all combat troops, foreign combat troops out of Afghanistan, and the perception in the public's mind is that will be job done. And I think what uh, both Sir Stephen and Sir David are cautioning against is that it's a much longer time frame than this. And they both talked about another five years beyond 2014, so perhaps another 10 years from now, uh, before there'll be any kind of historical judgment, any assessment on whether the mission has succeeded, although they both remain 
pretty confident as you'd expect them to, although I detect that in Sir David Richard's comments in The Times today, um, more enthusiasm and certainty than perhaps we heard from Stephen Dalton with his uh, uh, acknowledgement there uh, that this has to be handled very carefully lest Afghanistan descends once more into civil war. So, Jeff, they're effectively trying to reduce our expectations for 2014-2015, are they? Yes, I think that's what what this is about. Um, Certainly, uh, Sir David Richard's comments will have been well-received here uh, among the forces in theatre uh, because he's very much uh, a leader who represents his forces and his view chimes with what you hear from the men and women serving out here. Uh, v- very much unlike Iraq, there is, a, there is a strong sense that this is a fight uh, which has been difficult but has been worth it, is worth winning and the prospect of success is now tantalisingly close, given the build-up of the of the ANA and the Afghan National Police. But I think it's you're right. It's a question of managing expectations, so that we don't all assume. And certainly, Sir Stephen Dalton has has hinted very strongly that air power will have to stay here, uh, likely for many years beyond 2014. That that the job will be done at the end of that year. General Richards was asked whether British troops would end up back in Sangin after the Americans pull out. What did he have to say about that? Well, <laughs> he repeated, no, no. He was quite <laughs> definite on that point. There would not be a, a, a re-deployment of British troops back into Sangin. And I think the reason that won't happen is, one, it would be perceived as a retrograde step, going backwards uh, uh, to the huge problems of Sangin in 2006-2007 uh, with the platoon houses uh, policy, which which was very costly and questionable in terms of what it achieved. Um, But also, uh, I I think he's saying by that time, by the time the Americans do draw down, the Afghan security forces will have been built up enough uh, that they will be able to defend and secure places like Sangin. But I think we shouldn't forget, remember we spoke a couple of weeks ago um, to General James Bucknell uh, as he was leaving as number two. Uh, Only last week, actually, Jeff. (laughs) In, indeed, how, how time flies. And he was saying, in fact, that the, 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 the drawdown of ISAF forces and the American drawdown will be managed so that it will happen last and, uh, and least in places like Central Helmand, like Sangin, where those troops are needed most. So although there is natural concern that the Americans are taking home 30,000, uh, almost a third of their total force, over the next 10 months, the indication that we get here is that that will be handled so that the troops will remain longest where they're needed most in places like Sangin. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of these seemingly coordinated comments? Well, they were saying the whole thing 18 months ago, and the Prime Minister said as much 18 months ago, that combat troops will be out. Then we have a period of uncertainty, but it's likely to last 10 years, and the combat role ought to be seen in terms of the fact that the United Kingdom, certainly the Americans, would have a training role, that the RAF would still have a role because you've got to have shift people in, you've got to have a transport system that can shift people in, air transport. You've also got to have uh, uh, what used to be sort of combat air patrols, basically force protection for that. So there still be a large operation. The guy starting his training today in, in the Army might very well find himself for the next five, six, seven, eight years 
actually uh, in uh, still having tours in, in Afghanistan. So I think we should see it. There. The other side of it is very important. We talk about how we leave the things and how, what condition we're leaving the things. Don't forget, Pakistan, India and Iran are the key people. If they don't want the peace, they can absolutely screw the whole thing up. And in, we've seen recently that they're willing to do so. Indeed. Uh, Jeff, we're coming to the end of November, a tough month in Helmand with an increase in the number of British casualties. But only last week we were talking to you about how the number of violent attacks had gone down. Is there a reason for this? There does seem to be a contradiction or a mismatch here, doesn't there? Six deaths so far in November, the month not over yet. Uh, that's as bad as it was in June, where it's traditionally thought to be uh, that time of year, the peak of the, of the fighting season. And you have to go back to February uh, to find a, a bigger death toll when uh, seven uh, uh, British military fatalities were sustained in that month. Um, is there something going on? I'm assured not. There, uh, um, all of these deaths occurred in Nari Siraj. Um, uh, most, I think all but one, were as a result of IED, uh, improvised explosives. Is there a, either a major uh, a, a Taliban uh, attack, uh, an offensive going on there? No, I'm, I'm told. Are British forces on the counterattack, are they staging something that we don't know about because it's ongoing? Again, I'm assured that's not the case. It simply is a sad fact that that is where 60% of British military, military operations are, are currently taking place in Nari Siraj. That's where the Taliban are presented with most of their targets of opportunity that IEDs depend upon. That's where they will lay their bombs because that's where they have the best chance of causing uh, fatalities and injuries to their enemy. Um, so it, it does seem to be contradictory, but uh, look at what was happening a year, two years ago, when the monthly death toll was up in the high teens and 20s, um, I think we can believe mm. uh, the military authorities when they say a, a big drop Indeed. in violence for the first time it's going down, 30% in some areas, and what we've seen this month in Nari Siraj is a blip, hopefully, right. uh, but let's see what happens in the, in the coming month and two. All right, Jeff Mead and Cambastian, thank you for that. Sit rep with Still to come, the Turkish president is visiting Britain. Will this help in his quest for EU membership? And has the Arab Spring turned into the winter of discontent? The coalition government has been forced into a climb-down over controversial reforms to the inquest system. Justice Secretary Ken Clark has abandoned plans to abolish the post of Chief Coroner amid heavy opposition from the Royal British Legion. Kirianne Curley is the widow of Royal Marine Corporal Stephen Curley, who was killed by an IED in Afghanistan. She wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister explaining the difficulties of the current inquest system. The process itself is particularly harrowing given that for some um, inquests, particularly with my husband's case, um, Stephen died on the 26th of May 2010 and his inquest was early August. So that's 15 months between him being killed and actually having his inquest, which I found particularly difficult. They talk about the inquest process offering some kind of closure, but actually as time went on, I, I kind of didn't feel that even the inquest would offer that closure because it had been such a long period of time. Well, a little earlier I spoke to Kevin Shinkwin from the Royal British Legion. We are absolutely delighted uh, because this is a huge victory for bereaved armed forces families. And indeed, 
for the armed forces community uh, as a whole. Has the government gone far enough, though? I think the government has gone as far as it's prepared to go at this stage. Um, it was always the main objective of our campaign, which was called Leave It Out 10, for the Chief Coroner to be left out of the Public Bodies Bill, the bonfire for Crangos, if you like, completely. That has happened. You're absolutely right, though, um, by implying that there is something missing, which is the appeals. However, we are confident that, first of all, the Chief Coroner is going to make a tremendous difference in spreading best practice. So we hope that there will be less reason for families to want or need to appeal. But secondly, charities like the Royal British Legion will be looking to bereaved on forces families to keep us informed of problems that they have with interests so that we in turn can keep the chief coroner informed of those problems and so that he can recommend or she can recommend to the Lord Chancellor action that needs to be taken. How will the chief coroner actually make a difference practically? Well there are a number of ways. First of all the chief coroner was always absolutely vital in providing independent leadership, which is painfully lacking in the system. So you see huge variations, very painful variations in the experience of bereaved armed forces families going to interests in different parts of the country. So consistency, spreading best practice. Can, can you give some, you talk about that the varying experiences people have, can you give some examples? Yes, um, without, um, I mean they'd have to be anonymous, but for example, we know of uh, one case where three interests were um, processed in the space of a morning. Uh, which we really think is is not appropriate. Um, we also know of um, problems with disclosure of information to bereaved forces families. We also know um, of first-hand experience of bereaved forces families of coroners appearing not to be as independent as they should. It was the previous government who introduced the position of chief coroner, but they didn't actually appoint anybody to the job. How soon do you think it will be before someone is appointed? Well, I was actually in uh, the House of Lords listening to the debate last night, and uh, the minister was very clear. The words he used were, with all due speed. And he also said to members of the House of Lords, please hold me to that. Well, it's not just... Uh, members of the House of Lords who are going to hold the government to that promise. The Royal British Legion will also be doing that as well. Kevin Shinkwin from the Royal British Legion. At the beginning of this year, it would have been inconceivable to predict the way the Arab Spring has taken hold across the region. Let's reflect now on this week's development, starting in Yemen, where if President Ali Abdullah Saleh stays true to the agreement he's just signed, he'll become the fourth Arab leader to fall. John Marks is editorial director of Cross Border Information and joins me now. John, uh, thanks for your time today. It's taken nine months for him to agree to go. Why do you think he has agreed to do this now? Well, it's an even longer-running process. Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, pressure for him to go goes 
back before the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring kind of momentum has added to his pressures, but he runs a very difficult situation. Look, the opposition in Yemen is uniting. Members of Saleh's own GPC ruling party are saying now is the time for him to go. One of the themes of the Arab Spring that is evident in Yemen is that um, people didn't want to see close members of uh, Saleh's family, including his son and his nephew, being lined up for the presidency, for there to be a sort of royal succession. So there's a lot of pressure. And from the outside, Saleh's um, advisors, his financial team, have been told by the IMF and other international financial institutions look, there isn't the money that you thought you were going to get in place until Saleh goes and we've got a better political dispensation. So he's absolutely, he's between a rock and a lot of hard places. So he's going, at least formally. Now, whether he actually feels that he's practically leaving the scene, that's another question. Indeed, and, and Yemen has long been cited as a hotbed of terrorist activity. Is there any intelligence on what's happened to those training camps in the last nine months? Well, the authorities, of course, have been focused in on themselves, actually protecting what's left around Sana'a. So for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, they are still able to operate. They have their, their bases and their people in the country, except when the Americans send predator drones after them. But the thing about it is that's really interesting is that in the Yemeni dispute, there are radical Islamists who in the past would have sympathized with the al-Qaeda idea but actually, the Yemeni dispute, like many of the Arab Spring disputes, has really p rather passed some of these ultra-radical um, Islamist groups, the ones that really dominated in the last decade of the, the global war on terror. It's kind of passed them by, and the, the Yemeni battleground is within domestic um, Islamist movements who see themselves as part of the future, but also people like the um, the, the, the Zaidi Shia um, Houthis, the Al-Houthi rebellion in, in, the, in the north, and also, of course, moves in the south, in the old south Yemen, towards secession. So what Ali Abdullah Saleh has faced is, is just a whole raft of the problems, the contradictions that were always in um, Yemeni politics, all coming together. But a lot of those are much more um, internal Yemeni situations than they've been in the more global war on terror context. Well, while the situation appears to be moving forward in Yemen, <clears> in Syria there seems little sign of Bashar al-Assad agreeing to soften his brutal stance against protesters, let alone relinquish power. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, Syria's former ally, Turkey, has spoken out very strongly against Syria this week, saying the nation has reached a dead end comparing Assad to Hitler. Are sanctions the only option for the international community at the moment? Um, no, the Americans have actually said that um, it's quite possible to divert the resources, certainly of, um, of the Syrian president's brother, who commands the Fordiv, uh, and supposed to be the you know the worst of the lot, by the Turks actually having some active military activity along their border and, if necessary, over their border, and that will divert the attention. But the important thing is that the the Turks who have grown, I think John might agree with this, they've grown stature. Under the present uh, present gov uh, uh, government and his recent uh, the prime minister's recent visit to Egypt was almost the sort of sort of reception you give for a, for a pop star. The important thing, though, is that Syria is a very important trading partner of uh, uh, of Turkey, and Turkey doesn't want this thing to go on forever. And the, uh, because, you know, this, this is trade. The second part of it is, is that they are doing certain things that the Americans want them to do. 
Therefore, they're getting the Americans to put pressure on, on, on the Europeans to make the case for Turkey's entry into the European Union, which is the final ambition of Turkey, so much Is that stronger. exactly what's been behind the state visit this week for the president, President Gul of Turkey? Well, he was, he was due to come anyway. But yeah, this is the main, th- this is the main ambition. Uh, if Turkey looks westward, and don't forget it's a member of NATO, if it looks westward, there's only one thing that it really needs to do. And that is actually get its candidacy membership of 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 uh, European Union really firmed up. The British turn around and say one of the conditions, apart from human rights, one of the conditions you've got to sort Cyprus out, and there's no sign of that happening yet. Uh, let's turn to Libya briefly. Uh, John Marks, obviously Colonel Gaddafi's infamous son, Saif al Islam, is going to face justice, whatever that is, after he was captured at the weekend. Um, how he's tried, undoubtedly, a big test of democracy and the law, uh, and the law of the emerging Libya. Um, do you get the impression that Libya is now over the worst? Well, it depends, because we're through a series of phases, and the mopping up of the Gaddafi family, I think, has been remarkably successful. You know, having one or two of them still at liberty, the fact is the revolution would have succeeded in getting rid of the family, because... At the end of the day, everything revolved around the brother colonel. But it's clearly much tidier that um, members of the family are either um, sort of holed up in Algeria and Niger, where they can be kept under a degree of control. And the, the, the main players, Al-Mutasim, Saif, um, and then other family members like Abdullah Sanusi, who was the last one to be captured, they've all gone. But it's only a phase. We're now going to come to the really critical point, I think, that... During the revolution, the number of different groups who gathered in Benghazi, who were representing the, the National Transition Council, really kept their political lights um, hidden. Now they're going to have to compete in politics to get seats in government, and there's going to be elections. And you're going to see very clearly the balance between, in very rough terms, Islamist and secular forces. Also within the Islamist parties, which are those have the most weight and in the regions whether the east can really rise up higher up the pecking order um, against the west is always a major problem and whether some of the provinces can also make their situation better so basically what we're going to come to is down and dirty politics we're going to come down and dirty politics in a situation where the revolution has been well managed so far in what was a very chaotic situation Um, but that they're going to play politics, people are going to be looking for advantage, they're going to be looking to gather gather supporters and they're going to be looking to push ideologies. And this in a country that's still highly armed, where people have got used to firing off Kalashnikovs and uh, where institution building is at a very, very early stage. So it's going to be very, very difficult. And that institution building will also cross over into what happens with Saif al-Islam. You know, some people are saying, hang him, hang him, hang him. Many others are saying, no, there has to be a due process. But does that due process happen in the Libyan system? Is the Libyan system ready to have a big high-profile trial, as would happen with Saif? Or would it be the International Criminal Court, in which case many Libyans would say, well, this is a sovereignty issue. We've got a problem with it. All right, John Marks, uh, there we must leave it for the moment. But thanks very much for your time. That's John Marks, the editorial director of Cross-Border Information.
Let's move to Egypt now. Protesters are occupying Cairo's Tahrir Square for a sixth day. Egypt's ruling military has apologised for the deaths of protesters in clashes with police. Appearing on television, two senior generals offered condolences to the whole Egyptian people. The BBC's Hugh Sykes has been following the story and joins us now from Cairo. Hugh, thanks for your time. Can you describe hello. what's hello. hello? Can you describe what's happening where you are, Hugh? Well, I could describe what's happening where I am. I'm leaning on a, uh, a fifth-floor balcony looking, looking down at a street market uh, a couple of blocks away from Takriya Square. Takriya Square, which I've been to this morning, is uh, peaceful. It's been peaceful every day and almost all day ever since the weekend. The trouble's been taking, not in, taking place not in Takriya Square but, but off the square. It's a crucial difference. Um, the, the problem with the streets near the square, behind the American University, is that uh, one of the crucial buildings there is the Interior Ministry and the police and the army to some extent have been trying to stop protesters from getting at the interior ministry. I think they have no alternative because they remember what happened earlier in the year when protesters managed to get into the building of the headquarters of former President Barak's National Democratic Party, huge 13-story, very long, grey concrete building on the edge of the, overlooking the River Nile. They got in. They to it. They sacked it. They burned it. And it's now got hardly any uh, glass in its windows and it's got charred walls. So you've got these running battles um, around the interior ministry, two or three hundred <coughs> metres away from Tahrir Square, almost every night, uh, with youths throwing petrol bombs and chucking rocks made from broken up bits of pavement. And the police responding with tear gas. Well, what, what else are they supposed to do? And what puzzles me is, why are the young men still attacking the police. It, it's a mystery. Uh, and they say, we've got almost what we want. We're going to go on doing this until Field Marshal Tantawi has stepped down just like President Mubarak did because he is actually Mubarak Mark II. So, so do you get the feeling from the protesters that they feel they're on the brink of success then or do they feel they're back where they started? No, well that's, that's my point. They think that they're winning. Uh, how have the apologies from the generals been received? Well, that, it's, just, it's just bizarre, really. Um, president, uh, sorry, I called him president. He's not the president. <laughs> Field Marshal uh, Mohammed Hussein Tantawi, who's head of SCAF. SCAF is this, this uh, acronym which is spat by people on the streets here. It stands for the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. He, on Monday, actually, said he felt sad about the people who died. Well, was he talking about the people who died in the square at the weekend when... Uh, the armed forces brutally cleared the square and killed several people. Or was he talking about the people who've been killed in, in the clashes with the uh, petrol bomb and, and stone-throwing th stone youths? If he and those two generals today are apologising for the deaths of the youths who've been attacking the police with petrol bombs, that's bizarre because he's apologising uh, for what the police are doing. And if uh, the head of the armed forces is apologising for what the police are doing, Maybe he's not in control of what the police are doing, and some people are saying that that is a possibility. The, the parliamentary election is still due to go ahead on Monday. A lot of mixed feelings about that. How on earth can they be conducted against this backdrop? Well, it's actually, it's slightly misleading. I mean, you're, you're right to say that due to go ahead on Monday, but actually they are due to start on Monday, and the elections for the lower house and the upper house will stretch on into, um, get this, put it in your diary, March. Three stages for both Houses of Parliament. Um, so Monday is going to be difficult. It's overshadowed by this violence. Something might be sorted out between now and then. But it is still a bizarre atmosphere for the first ever democratic elections in Egypt to, 
to be taking place in this feverish atmosphere of violence, albeit in a very, very small part of Cairo, but dominating the news, making people scared. A woman in this block where I'm staying, big old-fashioned Kyrene block of flats, one of the apartments turned into a hotel. She said, I'm simply afraid to go out. I'm afraid. Um, so it's, it's very difficult. We'll see. I haven't seen any campaigning. I've seen lots of posters, but I haven't seen any candidates. Hugh Sykes in Cairo, thank you very much for your time today. And of course, Christopher Lee is still with us in the studio. Uh, Christopher, how can Egypt move forward? I'll tell you the puzzle, which nobody can answer at the moment. The guys go, the girls go out into the square or into the side streets and they say, we want the military out, right? And we want the civilians in. Nobody has asked, answered this question for me. Can the military or a civilian government, can they actually deliver? I mean, do they have I mean, the... The standard of living there is no, just... It's, it's more than that. It's can they deliver the security? Can they get uh, the judiciary working properly, as these people say? Have they got the facility? Right the way through, we've seen the Arab Spring, talking to John Marks earlier on, he was talking about you know, the trials in Libya. The cru- crucial thing to these, every single country we're talking about, is the establishment of an independent judiciary. It's that which people say, okay, we're satisfied, something is happening. I get the impression at the moment that people on the square, as we'll call them, are asking for things that nobody at the moment, nobody in power in Egypt could actually deliver it. They've started to realise this in Alexandria. If you go to Alexandria or read about Alexandria, the the protests have sort of levelled down because they realise, to some extent, they've got to be let to get on with it. Okay, uh, Christopher, on a slightly more positive note to finish the programme on today, um, you wanted to talk about Americans celebrating Thanksgiving. Well, it's Thanksgiving Thanksgiving Day today, so don't try and ring up your cousin in America because the American cousins will be eating themselves silly. Uh, 1863, Abe Lincoln, right in the middle of the Civil War, said, listen, we've got to be thankful and let us have our Thanksgiving holiday. But when I think about it, what Americans got to be thankful for? Um, they've got a president that was so many, so many hopes put in that president, and he's failed to deliver. The economy's getting worse, and the Republicans, who are the alternative for the elections next year, my goodness, they're useless. <laughs> and also, quick one, very quick one, they, this is our president, because we are so wrapped up in what American foreign policy is, and- that we're going to vote for our guy next November. And I thought we were going to finish that on a happy note. Christopher, good to see you as ever. That's all we got time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. Uh, do send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Kate Chabot. Goodbye.